0: Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
1: Good to be with you, Ashley. Happy Advent, and happy birthday to um, (laughs) one of our producers, Kevin Jackson.
0: Yes, happy birthday, Kevin. We, We gave him the honor of picking out our drink. And sharing it <laughs> with us.
1: Yes, Kevin is. I think uh, one of like three people that knows how to turn these mics on in the studio. So yeah. we are indebted to him in, <laughs> in, in a very real way. But he's also a good guy to work with. Um, and so we're drinking some uh, tequila in his honor, some reposado tequila. Mm-hmm. So as he as he refers to it as, it's drinking tequila. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're yes, just I was having told I should
0: not mix anything with it. So correct, just ice. So well, cheers, cheers to Kevin. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> <laughs> All right. And who are we talking to this week?
0: We have a really exciting guest. We are talking to Lydia Bastianich, who you might know her as an award-winning television host and author of cookbooks, a restaurant tour, and the owner of a flourishing food and entertainment business.
1: Yeah. And she's got a brand new special out on PBS called Lydia Celebrates America, Overcoming the Odds, which uh, tells the story of a, a smattering of Americans who have been faced with like some really difficult circumstances uh and have found you know found ways to kind of overcome them and 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 make something of, of, of their life. And it's really inspiring, but it also is just like a great opportunity to chat with Lydia, who's this American food icon, yeah. um, who has an incredible story just like herself about overcoming the odds. Um so, if you are someone who is likes to be inspired, a but also is a bad cook, or uh, and, and needs a little bit of encouragement, or is a great cook and you know needs to be a little bit of encouragement to get to that next level, Lydia is there to make it happen. So, stay tuned for that. We talked to her a couple of days ago because we we have wine in our conversation oh, right. with Lydia. We're not we're not double fisting right now. So, wine that was Monday. Be, that would
0: be a really bad combo.
1: Tequila is Wednesday. So, stay tuned for that.
0: Uh, but first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Zach, it is the holiday season, and I don't know about you, but I'm going to be in a lot of photos with my family.
1: Yes, lots of lots of photographs being taken. And you know what? I, we're willing to bet that the majority of the photographs that everybody is taking or being in are taken on a smartphone.
0: Correct. And those cameras are really fancy and sophisticated now, and if you have the right technique, you can capture some really great shots, or you can hold it vertically and have everyone off-center or, you know, not well composed, but One is here to help.
1: Yes. So One has a course that we've been looking at um, and considering sending to maybe some some parents in our lives that are not... uh, great with their smartphones, but it's called the Complete Guide to Smartphone Photography. I thought this was really useful. Um, They go into just general basics, um, but also some, you know, I've got an iPhone, and so they do like a run through of, I I even learned about some new settings, like how to take photographs in in different file settings. So if you're looking to take like the 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 biggest file size possible, so the best quality, you can can change that in settings, so I learned that. Um, But if there's someone in your life that still thinks that pinching and zooming is a good idea, (laughs) on their smartphone, this is definitely a course for them, too.
0: Yes. So this is the perfect gift. So not only is Wondrium a gift, but you'll give your family the gift of taking actual good photos this year. And if you go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical, you will get a free trial.
1: Yeah. Again, that's wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical.
0: Now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
1: So I wanted to talk about an article that we published in America this week, um, which takes on a topic that I've been thinking about, uh, at least for the last couple months, which is we're going back to mass and things still look a little different, right? We're masking still. But that's not the only thing that's different. You know, there still hasn't been there hasn't been wine at communion. Yeah. Since the pandemic started, there's still
0: very awkward like signs of peace. Like, what do you do? Peace sign, wave. And my sister nod. my <laughs>
1: sister does a great impression of the people at our church that just like wrote like <laughs> rotate on a swivel with a peace sign, um <laughs> just saying hello and peace to everybody. Um there's no there's still not like holy water font uh, in a lot of the fonts that mm-hmm. I see. Um so just kind of wondering, uh, what parts of those are going to come back because I imagine a world where, I mean, there's a chance that, you know, I've always wondered what the germ-spreading mm-hmm.
2: capabilities
1: of a shared chalice for, for communion is. Um, I, th- I could conceive of a world where this doesn't happen anymore.
0: Right. So the article you mentioned, it's uh, titled, Why Not Communion? The Sign of Peace. Holy Water Fonts. Will These Parts of the Mass Ever Come Back? It's by a Jesuit, Michael Rozier, who is an, uh, an assistant professor of health management and policy and healthcare ethics at St. Louis University. So we, po- we posed to him kind of just like the public health, question of this like is it is it safe and he he points out that there have been there's not a lot of research around this but even before the pandemic there were studies about whether there was that much transmission of germs through the chalice and it's the answer was it's not zero but it's pretty negligible
1: i don't and- need a study to show tell me that that the the <laughs> the cloth wipe is not is not cleaning the germs um, I, th- that I'm certain of
0: well that's just to keep the precious blood from hitting the floor it's not meant to clean it
1: that's a good point Wow it sounds like you've been to your Eucharistic <laughs> minister training
0: yeah. um so yeah so his his answer is basically it is probably not a huge health risk for people who are vaccinated and are generally healthy to you know have the wine come back again and so that's the that's the public health answer but then there's the kind of like pastoral answer. Like, you have to do, make this decision as a parish community, and whether people feel comfortable doing it, whether it's worth even the tiniest risk is is the question facing parishes right
1: now. Yeah, and we have to, you know, recognize that it is, you know, we're not, he brings up the analogy, right? Like, sharing sharing drinks at dinner, th- this is not what we're talking about, right? This is something that's really important to Catholics, right? The, right? Um, the blood of Christ is, is hugely important. But we should also say that our theology says that you're not getting half of the, you know, body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ by only having uh, the bread, right? If if you g- you get all of Jesus <laughs> in, the, in just the tiniest amount of communion, so it's not like we need to have the blood also. Um, but it's, it's a highly contentious question, and I think we got to be really careful, particularly at this moment where there's the, the new Omicron variant rising, about how we discuss these things.
0: I have to say, I really hope it comes back. And I'm almost reluctant to share. This is like my weirdest Catholic story kind of thing to say. But I've always, um, you know, I get the bread, the body of Christ in the species of bread. yes, And then I drink from the chalice. And the way they like combine it like almost makes it more flesh-like and I meditate on what, because it's like such a hard thing to wrap your head around that like we really believe that this is the actual body and (laughs) blood of Christ. So having that like very physical, visceral experience, I've always found like a period to think about what what I believe and what that actually means.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to follow that. <laughs> and I'm struggling. No, I, I I think that's totally valid and that's a way to to meditate on your Eucharistic spirituality. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's been with a lot of people since their first communion for a long time. And so having something taken away that changes things is gonna is gonna throw some people off. I will say there's probably a reason that Jesus did both at the Last Supper, right? He did say, "This is my body, this is my blood." Um, so, uh, there's an argument for for continuing to do it. I I look forward to the day when this this freaking pandemic is is behind us and we don't have to like totally address this. But I think this is going to give us, you know, some new ways of looking at science and questions in theology about whether or not this is liturgically smart.
0: Yeah, and I think everyone's going to have their own answer to this. Uh, so if you have thoughts about whether we should bring the chalice back, you can tell us about it in your in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. What's our next story, Zach?
1: Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> we're waiting in some controversy here. Um, and we do need to give a big disclaimer. If you have children... Um, listening, maybe you're in the car right now, your kids are in the car, we're gonna recommend just turning the podcast off, switch switch some Christmas music, because we're gonna talk about some top secret Christmas things. <laughs> All right, glad that some of you are still here. Um, our story comes from Sicily, um, where Bishop Antonio Stagliano of the Diocese of Noto, Noto had some disturbing news for the school children that were attending his mass in Sicily this week.
0: Yes, and that was that Santa is not real. You can imagine the horror and shock and tears of these schoolchildren, all of whom were under the age of nine when they heard this news from the bishop on the feast of St. Nicholas.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like the more, this we, we have this story, uh, it comes from Jason Horowitz at the New York Times, and as you read it, it just keeps getting more and more devastating.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I found myself agreeing with the bishop in some, some cases, but he does kind of come off as like a ranting uh, philosophy student, <laughs> where, you know, the red color of his coat was chosen by Coca-Cola for advertising purposes. Um, and in, yeah, uh, you know, he's just really railing against what yeah. San- the idea of Santa and consumerism has done to the holiday. Yes.
0: And that's a fair point, I guess. <laughs> um, and he also makes the point that, you know, Santa seems to have a preference for rich kids and brings them a lot more Presents, And then to really dig this point in, he told the kids in front of him that they should ask for extra presents this year um, that they can give to the poor kids because, quote, given that you never visit them. Yeah. This is to nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds.
1: So some would would wonder if this is the most pastoral thing to do. This happens, it seems, every year where there's a big debate about whether or not – I don't know, Catholic parents should be encouraging or uh, their kids to believe in Santa or or going along with the idea. And I'm just gonna say, uh, it's a trap. Do not wade into this <laughs> debate. Do not have opinions about it. Um, otherwise, you're just going to be known as the bishop who told kids that Santa's not real.
0: The bishop also had a message that he wanted to relay to parents. One girl protested when she heard that Santa isn't real, saying her parents promised that he was real. And the bishop said the girl should tell her parents that they are liars.
1: <laughs> That's brutal. I, You know, I, I, I struggle with this because in some sense I do – I'm sympathetic to a lot of the things that uh, – bishop antonio is talking about uh, i was just talking to my wife about this that you know i i've as i get older i have become more like frustrated and probably this is probably because i don't have kids yet but uh I, I become more frustrated that like present giving is such like a focal point of the day um like i would i would love for it you know to be a big meal and and that is an important part but it just seems like in my mind when i think of christmas like it's like oh giving an opening presence. And it creates so much waste, right? We all are like between paper and plastic and all the things we're buying. And like most of us in the United States don't need more stuff. And so... I am sympathetic, but I also don't know if I were th- a bishop that I would be telling a group of nine-year-olds this.
0: Yeah, maybe this is something you write up in the parish bulletin so that the parents can can hear these arguments
1: um, in- and not have conscience. to hear it
0: from their um, their crying children. Yeah,
1: I think I think this would be a better <laughs> this information would be much better received uh, from from your parents instead of a bishop. Uh, so, and you know, as the church teaches, parents are our first teachers. Um, but it does get a it does get into this awkward situation where like the parents did lie to you. If you've already gone down this road. So I I I, I don't wanna have a take. I yeah. don't want I've given okay, too well, much already. All right,
0: no no more takes. But when did when did you realize that Santa wasn't real?
1: I think I realized um probably around fourth or fifth grade that my dad's handwriting mm. was the exact same as Santa's, like had this all all caps block lettering. Um, but we do have a special I, I feel we wanna Bring in our one of our other producers, Kira, um, because she has a very funny story about believing in Santa.
2: Yep, come on in, Kira.
1: Kira, welcome to this side of the studio. Uh, thanks for being here, on Judge Thank
2: you so much. I really appreciate you guys having me on to well, discuss such an important topic.
1: Controversial, <laughs> really. We need we need your take here. So, when did you stop believing in Santa?
2: Well, I think like you, I was probably in like the fourth or fifth grade, and my parents decided actually that it was time to tell me. When I was about to bring in a quote-unquote photograph of Rudolph to my fifth-grade show and tell, and they feared that that would result in some pretty bad bullying. For me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, um, but you, did you? Um, but you have this friend that continued to believe, right?
2: Yeah. So I had this friend growing up who, whenever the topic would come up, is Santa real? Is Santa not real? Um, you know, I didn't want to be the Grinch and spoil Christmas for anybody, and so. I always would just say, oh, yeah, of course I believe in Santa. How could you not? And she would always kind of do the same thing. And we would say, oh, do you still believe in Santa? Yes, of course I still believe in Santa. And finally, when we were, like, 16, I was like, (laughs) all right, like – the charade has to end. Like, <laughs> how long have you known? Um, and I think we had known almost the entire time we had had known each other, to but to each other. I yeah. love this story so much. It just,
0: it shows just how caring you both are as friends.
1: <laughs> You're both very pastoral in your friendship. Yeah,
2: unlike another. the bishop, please. So, oh, what, no. <laughs> So
1: do you think, do, would you have told a bunch of nine-year-olds that Santa's not real?
2: Of course not. No,
1: <laughs> is any part of you sympathetic?
2: Uh, you know, I, I think you guys, brought up some good and he brought up some good points about about you know kind of the the dangers of that narrative but to be the person who ruins it for a little kid I mean the best part of Christmas and I know this from having spent Christmas morning with younger cousins of mine who still believe is just their faces coming down the stairs and and you know I don't think that we should have kids grow up too fast. Uh,
1: well and- I mean, or maybe he's a prophet and we're all just angry at him for telling the truth. Um accepted in their
2: time, you
1: know. Yep, right. <laughs> so hard to say. Um Kira, thanks so much. Uh, Thank if you. you also have thoughts on the Santa debate uh, post, make sure that I guess we should make sure there are no children in our Facebook group yeah. for a number there of reasons. <laughs> yeah. But uh give us those thoughts there at Facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Thanks, Kira, for coming in the studio. Of course.
0: And now, stick around for our conversation with Lydia Bastianich. Joining us in studio is Lydia Bastianich. Lydia is an Emmy award-winning public television host, a best-selling cookbook author, restaurateur, and owner of a flourishing food and entertainment business. And now she's the host of the new PBS special, Lydia Celebrates America Overcoming the Odds, which shares the inspiring stories of resilient Americans Welcome to
3: Judge Lydia. Oh, my pleasure, Ashley.
1: This is such an honor. I, I I'm a, I'm a little bit and I've been holding it in, but um, thank thank you so much for coming. We're so excited to talk to you about uh, about a number of things and but to I, share a
0: glass of wine. Yes, with you. <laughs> and
1: we're and we're having some Bastianich uh, plus wine right now, which is.
0: Amazing.
3: (laughs) Really good. I I feel (laughs) at home here, thank you guys. (laughs) Can you tell
0: us a little bit about this wine? Well, this is,
3: yeah, we have a, the Bastianich winery is up in Friuli, Venezia Giulia. So we come from that area. Actually, our story is, I was born in Istria. Istria is now part of Croatia. So after World War II, Italy was on the wrong side. They lost the war and the spoils, as the spoils of war, Istria, which was part of Italy, went to communist Yugoslavia. And we got caught behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, it was difficult. to escape back into Italy, and- uh, And you're a
1: young girl at this point, correct? Uh, yes,
3: yes. I was born right at the end of the war, more or less, at that period. Then my first 10 years were under communism. Which was, which was difficult in a sense because being Italian and you know communism doesn't allow you to practice your religion or speak your language. So it was difficult for the family. My parents ultimately decided to really go back and they had to escape back into Italy and ultimately into Italy. I was about 10 years old when we got there. We spent two years in a refugee camp and then Uh, America opened its door and the Catholic Relief Services, the Catholic Charities, brought us to America. But to get back to the wine, (laughs) (laughs) we felt we wanted, we needed to be back in Italy and have a little home. And uh, Friuli Venezia Giulia is right on the border there. So this wine is from the Friuli Venezia Giulia region. And Italy has 20 regions, But Friuli Venezia Giulia is really known for its white wine. Uh, It's the Friulano, the Tocai, and it's a late harvest, so it's very complex. Yeah. And and yet at the same time, you know, it has that kind of uh, viscosity, if you will. Mm -hmm. You're enjoying it. Yeah, I love it. It's
1: like medium bodied. It's so it's but it's and it's also I can taste like the like the fruit and the melon, but there's also something. Spicy or peppery,
3: going on too, which is really fun. It is, it is, and this is one varietal, mind you. It's just that that we we uh, we have the fresh wine, you know, because the vi- the vines, you make the wine, and uh, you vinified at different points, so vinified it when it's freshly, and then later harvest, that means leaving it on until it dehydrates a little bit, so mm-hmm. it concentrates the flavors, the sweetness, and all of that, and then you vinify that, and then you sort of combine and give some wood for that complexity of tannin, and, this is, you know, this is the the artisan, the winemaker at work. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well Zach,
0: a- Zach could talk about wine for the entire show, yeah, but so we do we'll want to hear your- <laughs> Yeah, we'll
1: have to cut me off
3: now. No, no, but we can have another show, Zach. <laughs> yeah.
0: That sounds good. Have, okay. You talk wine.
3: That sounds
0: good. Uh, so, yeah, let's go back to your story. What was your experience of coming to the United States as a refugee like?
3: Well, it was extraordinary because, you know, growing up uh, in in a situation where you you were not free, we were not free. And as a child, you don't always realize everything. But you you realize that, you know, we couldn't speak Italian. We spoke it at home with my parents, but outside we couldn't. It was Yugoslavian there and it's Croatian, you know. Being on the border, you speak two or three languages anyway. But our language was Italian. And, uh, you know, we couldn't go to church. My mother was uh, an elementary school teacher, so she was really watched by the, the, the communists. So my grandmother would sneak me sometimes to church, you know. And knowing all of these things as a child, you wonder, you know, why can't I have the freedom to do this if that's what I want? And yet that was the reality. I was 12 when I came. My brother was 14. And just the freedom and the opportunity of what America was offering to us it was extraordinary and you know till this day
0: Did you come um, to New York originally?
3: We did. We come to we came to New York. They settled us in New Jersey. And I remember we went to Sacred Heart uh, school there and uh, the community, the Italian community was so wonderful and the, the Christian community they helped us to set up our home. They brought us food. They brought us uh, knives, forks, plates, everything. So you can't you can't forget those things. Those things remain how people really are caring and and giving. And uh, from then on, you know, the opportunity was there, and certainly uh, my brother and I uh, really took the opportunity for being. Having these opportunities and making them happen is what my life is all about in America.
1: Now, in the special, you are shown going back to um, the refugee camp that you and your family lived in in Italy. What was that like? The experience of going back.
3: (laughs) Well, going back was was really I uh, the first time I went. You know, there was a big knot in my in my throat just going there and looking because everything kind of comes back to you, it's like a like a rerun of of a film, uh, where you were, what you were doing, and uh, you know, and then it, you feel with, you see how grateful I should be, I am, for that ultimately I was given the opportunity and life was good to me. Uh, going back to the camp, um, I make sure that I brought my children when they were old enough that I brought my grandchildren to see you know, the life can put obstacles in front of you and things happen. Uh, but how, you know, with the right uh, opportunities, with the, the right attitude, with being surrounded with the right spiritual setting, how you can overcome and really go on in life. And the special is about exactly that.
0: Yeah, so how did you find the the stories that you, the people and their their own overcoming the odds, how did you go about finding those stories?
3: Well, it's. I think we have five stories. And usually, you know, you're in, in radio and production, you work with the production team, uh, which is WGBH, uh, the public television in Boston, and, uh, uh some of them i knew from before the first young man who was uh, a sommelier at at one of my restaurants uh before all of this uh, happened and then after he had moved on he had a car accident and uh, uh mr benjamin became uh, a quadriplegic he became uh, you know wheel wheelchair bound with the, from this accident but he was young. He was anxious. He loved the restaurant business. He loved his wine, uh, and uh, uh, his parents. His father was in the restaurant business, and so his his uh, he always wanted to open a restaurant. And about uh, six months ago, he got married, and he his wife is also into the hospitality business. They opened uh, a restaurant, Contento in Harlem, and they opened it, uh, a restaurant that is very uh, considerate of of all the needs that people might have, whether it's a wheelchair, whether it's a braille menu, uh, the hearing problems. And he opened this this restaurant, which is doing fantastically. And it's so wonderful to see how, you know, being in a wheelchair and especially being in the hospitality industry is a major, major blocking stone he overcame it. He is happy as can be and very successful. And I just, you know, it's so, so great to share this, to see how he, with his love, passion, support, uh, and and faith, he ultimately is where he wanted to be.
1: One of the things that I found very moving in the special is um, people that you feature are typically, as they get through and are dealing with... Um, Some of the things that are are being put in their way often get to a place where they want to give back and sort of help other people that are going through similar things. So um, so this man's creating a barrier free restaurant where other people who are wheelchair bound can, you know, come up and have a a better dining experience than, you know, practically everywhere else in New York. You've got someone that was stuck in the foster care system who ends up uh, adopting someone from the foster care system. I'm wondering why do you think that that is, or what what is it about? Because you yourself have gone through this too, where you've benefited from Catholic charities and, and Catholic Relief Services, and I think today you're still you know, advocating and, and working with Jesuit Refugee Service and other groups
3: to kind of help those people. Why, why is that? Uh, I think that you come to realize, uh, uh, hopefully, the gift that you've been giving, because you know, to be able to overcome, a lot of people help you to do that. And then, at least in my case, what I realized was that it's not mine to keep. You know, this all this uh, uh, goodness, this uh, uh, energy, this love, this following, this uh, uh, monetary satisfaction, if you will, it's not all mine to keep. You know, if that were the end it'd be awfully sad. I think that some of the best part of all of this, the best part of all of this is when you can give back and when you can give to some of those people that need it, like you, like I needed it in my time. So I really understand. And I think for Yannick, which is the young man that's, that's in a wheelchair, to be able to, because he knows the difficulties of being in a wheelchair and not being able to get... A table at the restaurant, and he knows now that when that person comes with a the wheelchair, they are so they should be so grateful and so appreciative of what. They, so it's it's a it, I think giving is much more than receiving at the end.
0: So it's your special is called Lydia celebrates America, and I don't know. I feel like there's not a lot of celebrating of America <laughs> happening right now. There's a lot of talk about how divided we are as a country. So what did, did you learn anything that might give us a more, a more hopeful picture of America through well, telling these stories?
3: You know, uh, Ashley, this is my, I think, 11th special. Mm-hmm. And I started, I proposed this to uh, PBS because precisely I wanted to thank America. I wanted people to, to know what America did for me. And how it, and I am one person. There's many like me, and to be appreciative of this great country, so going around and finding actually Americans that had opportunities, that overcame the odds, that were helped, you know, things like that. In America, there's a lot of them, and America is great for that. I did two two specials on veterans. I just think of veterans, I admire them because I know what it is not to have freedom, not to have democracy. And these young men, in their prime of their life, are willing to put their life on the line so that we as Americans could have that democracy, could be free, could be free to speak the language that we want, could be free to practice the religion that we want, and could be helping each other in this great country that... Offers us so much, so I think in these specials I am really hoping to bring forth how great America is in all its aspects.
1: Now, one of the ways, uh, best ways to celebrate is to get around the table and, and share a meal, uh, which you do quite a bit of in in the special. So, what it is, what is it about uh, food and, and and wine and and the table that brings people together in in, in a way that other things can't?
3: Food is uh, a common denominator to all of us. We all need food, need food to survive. But food goes beyond just nourishing and vitamins and proteins and minerals and whatever. Uh, Food is also a magnet, a communicator, a way of expressing our Care for somebody else, a love for somebody else. Uh, It is a, a, a moment when we eat together that renders us quite all equal in a sense. And we are really open to each other's messages. I mean, you know, look at the Catholic faith, look at the Last Supper, look at it's around the table. It's a place where people can really communicate and get the message through. So I feel that it's especially important for families to get together and young children to find the time to cook at home and uh, communicate at the table. Because, you know, that's one of the few things that we take in in us, food. So our defenses are down. We are accepting uh, because we need to accept food wantingly and really be grateful for it. So our defenses are down for eating. Our defenses are down even mentally. Because if you say to your child, oh, we're going to discuss drugs or something, let's go in the room and discuss. <laughs> of course, they're going to tighten up and be on the defensive. But if at the table, when you're offering them love and the food that they love, that they enjoy, uh, they their defenses are down. And within that context, things can be discussed. Family things should be discussed that permeate, that enter into the child's mind without being uh, uh, kind of regimental and being imperative. So the table is a very, very special place. Mm.
0: And you've shared uh, the table with some pretty... <laughs> Important people in your career, including uh, two popes. <laughs> uh, so, can you tell us what it was like to to cook for Pope Francis when he came to New York?
3: Oh, it was extraordinary. I first got a chance to cook uh, for Pope Benedict when he came. He was the first one, and uh, um, because uh, you know, when when the nuncio came to me. Uh, And he says, Lydia, you know, the Pope is coming. Would you like to? I I remain. I said, would I like to? But I didn't think it was going to happen. You know, you you think, okay. When Pope Benedict came, it really happened. And as you know, you know, the Popes, uh, they, they stay in the nuncio's house. They don't go to hotels and they eat there. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They don't eat outside, and so it's moving in with the Pope. <laughs> and
1: That's... you're cooking the whole time. It's not like you made like one meal. No, no, you I made cook several.
3: <laughs> downstairs. The, exactly. The, the The Nuncio's house here is on seventy second Street in New York, uh, and uh, you know there is the entrance, the welcoming, then the dining room, and all that. Upstairs is the bedroom where the Pope slips, sleeps. I mean, we're up there. Brought brought breakfast and whatever not while he was there but prepared it for him mm-hmm. and then of course lunch served and the kitchen is downstairs so we lived in the same house for the whole period that they that they were here uh and and uh, you know you can't help but just feel that that closeness and that because you know they come up they come down you give them breakfast you give them dinner lunch and whatever they have their guests it's an extraordinary situation with pope francis not only did we we were, one day after lunch, we were all, the workers, we were about seven of us. We were having our coffee, and there was like a long hallway, and he slips in right into the kitchen behind, you know, his <laughs> wife and he says, posso ver a café con voi? can I have some coffee with you? I mean, we were all, all startled, of course, you know? <laughs> and, and so he came in, joined us for coffee, he uh, blessed every single one of us. Uh, and ultimately gave us. He went into his little pocket there, the long mm-hmm. whatever. Gave each one a blessed uh, uh, rosary, and uh, by then the secret service men were running all over the place. They were looking for him. Oh my goodness! So he oh, so
1: he really slipped in just into the kitchen. He's known to, to
3: do that. He's oh known to do that. He slipped downstairs. They couldn't find him, oh. and he was downstairs in the kitchen with us.
0: Did he? Did he tell you what he thought of his food? Did he
3: enjoy it? Oh, he enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. You know, Father Benedict, since I come from that area, I told you, you know, where it's Slavic, Austria, Hungarian mm-hmm. and all that area that I come from. I His mother was a chef. Uh-huh. Pa, uh, yeah, Pope uh, Benedict's mother was a chef. I did a little research. And so I made for him sauerkraut, goulash, apple strudels, all the things that he would uh, associate and uh, uh, when when I served when I served him the, the cake, the birthday cake, you know, uh, sort of at the table, uh, did you enjoy it? He said, my mother's flavors oh. and I really loved it and that was uh, father uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, Pope uh, uh, Francis, you know, from Argentina, I thought I was going to do big pieces of meat. But the Vatican nixed the menu because he was watching. So I did- He was on a diet, (laughs) right? he, He was on a diet. He was watching. But he is originally from Piemonte. Mm-hmm. And so I know that they like the risotto, their soups, so I made some of that and he really they really enjoyed it. I I think they did. Okay. And they they enjoyed the wine because they drank Bast- Bastianich wine So too. we're drinking
1: the wine that the pope's drank. Yes, too. Oh, wow. they Excellent. drank this wine. <laughs> now, um you mentioned earlier uh you pointed to the Bible, you said look at Jesus, you know, Jesus was someone who's always at the table with people, right? And, exactly. and people are criticizing him for it, right? They call him a glutton and a drunker. Why do you, uh, what do you think Jesus was like at the table?
3: I think that he really realized the reality, the opportunity of connecting with people on a really visceral, on a deep level at the table. Food was the ultimate, is the ultimate equalizer. It puts people at ease. It puts people accepting, you know, you're accepting food, you're accepting what's being spoken of. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's, till this day, that message is very valid, I think, you know, sitting at the table with people. Why do you think, you know, you have a business proposal? Take them to dinner. You want to propose to a young lady? Take her out to dinner because the table and food is a special place of communication.
0: How does how does your own faith shape how you how you approach your your cooking and your
3: My faith is of course Uh, grateful for growing up with my grandmother in the aftermath of the war. How, you know, how important food was. She would generate all the food for the family. You know, we had goats, we had chickens, we had uh, pigs. Uh, I would help her milk the goat. We would make ricotta, we would make cheese. The the pigs, the slaughter of the pigs, the prosciutto, the sausage, all of this. She didn't waste one single crumb. The respect for food. And, you know, the the, the, uh, The reverence and the thankfulness for because food doesn't just come, you know, the earth this you figure this earth gives you this beautiful produce that it's beyond just, you know, uh, it's it's, uh, a gift from somebody beyond that you know makes all of this happen, and we have to respect it, and especially uh, not waste it and people that are without it. I went from one extreme to the other but i uh, one keeps me in balance of the other
1: now i feel like we we were talking about all of the good things that america does but i do feel like uh, americans in particular don't always have this same rever- you you said reverence for food the way that anyone who's been to italy or been at a long italian meal knows it's 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 a luxurious experience and oftentimes we're kind of you know we certainly take some things for granted in terms of like mass market food, or just quick food, or fast food, or you know, eating on the eating on the couch. Um, what do you think we need to do to kind of get back in touch with uh, the, the sort of sacramentality that
3: a meal really brings? I think it's happening, Zach. I think that there is an awareness. Young people today uh, are, are really realizing uh, that you know our environment. And if we don't protect it. If we don't take care of it, it's not going to take care of us for that long. And that's where ultimately it is. So I think sometimes big industry and uh, the economy sometimes takes us in 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 on tangents. But we have to bring it back. And I think I think people are really Americans are really realizing. I think. Uh, even during this COVID situation of being at home, how many people got back into cooking? Uh, I know I get it on my email. They love it getting together. Lydia, we're at the table like you're talking about, and I think they're they're getting they're getting it. It's coming back, and it's being it's being realized. So you know, it's it's I think all of us that have a consciousness. You're in the forefront by the message. Uh, keep on bringing it forth. And talking about it, America is slowly turning around as far as food and the respect and the appreciation and the value of food, you know, even our own personal lives. If you eat the right food and good, you're going to live a healthy, long life. Otherwise, you know, you're shortchanging yourselves. What was it
1: like uh, for the pandemic? You mentioned like uh, in the special, you weren't able to share your table and share your food with people, which I feel, I imagine was such it's a core part of your identity. Um, how did you adjust and deal with that?
3: Well, all the restaurants that we had, you know, had to shut down. But I had, I had the venue of my books, uh, the internet, and my shows were still running. I even taped some shows uh, during the pandemic. We did it uh, very supervised, and I did it in my backyard, in my kitchen. very the message, so people continued to connect. And sent messages and want, and they shared. They shared with me it was wonderful because I got so many pictures. Look at the meal. Look, this is your lasagna. This is, and I just loved it. You know, when you get uh, an email uh, of 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 a mother says Lydia, you know, and in a, in a state or city that most likely I will never go and most likely never see these people says Lydia. Last night we had a Lydia meal. We had Lydia at our house. We made this and this and this, and you know, I, I it just my heart really filled because i know that if they cooked those recipes my aromas were with them my flavors were with them so my in a way lydia was with them yeah oh,
0: <laughs> that's man. amazing so did um that period when things were shutting down and you know i think a lot of us were able to like take stock of you know what we really valued and what we wanted to do uh you know when and if this ever ends did did you have any any moments like that where you you saw a new path oh uh,
3: absolutely absolutely i think it really took me back to my those those formative years with my grandmother and you know when everything was so basic and uh uh uh, even my my last book, A Pot, A Pan, and a Bowl, Lydia's Pot and a Pan, is based on remembering how grandma had one pot on the stove. She didn't have 10 pots. And, you know, how in that one pot was a fulfilling and nourishing meal with the proteins, the legumes, and the vegetables, one after another. So, absolutely. And, you know, I have um, uh, my my mother, who, uh, who everybody loves. She was always on the show with me. Um, She passed in in February. She was 100 in January. Now she lived with me. We lived together most of our lives, but I really had time to spend with her. So I was very grateful Mm -hmm. that we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day uh, uh, together, and that the kids and the grandkids would come and visit under conditions because, you know, she was an elderly woman. So, so, um, absolutely, you know, this, the, this for me at least brought me back and reinforced my, my philosophy on food and how to treat it, how to respect it, and what food, what role food plays in us as a family, as human beings.
1: Now, I was curious to get your thoughts on, if there are young people listening to this, they're you know, kind of starting out, strapped for resources, uh, wh- what are some ways that they can sort of engage in this, in this culture of, of you know,
3: really okay. getting into food and things? All right. I'm glad you gave me this platform. Good. What I tell them is what I tell you out guys out there, get cooking. You might think you don't know how, but I can guarantee that you will be able to cook something. We all have sort of an affinity to food in a way, you know, food we are all. So don't be afraid of it. Get into it. Yes, you know, you have, you guys are always on the internet, all the recipes you want. Look at LydiaZitaly.com. You'll get all my recipes and get in the kitchen and cook. Uh, Cook seasonally, cook locally. Don't overdo it simple things you know like spaghetti garlic and oil you you need three ingredients four ingredients follow my recipe because i tell you exactly the technique and you're going to have a delicious dish so in my shows also because my kids are away at college we zoom and they cook in college you know they always mm-hmm. cooked at home i always took them in the kitchen and so they do Cook in college Something like a hot plate. How are they <laughs> on a hot plate, yeah. mind you, oh on a goodness. hot plate? I imagine
1: they can... they're very popular. Yeah. in the dorm,
3: they they do, they do, they make it, they make it. So, all of you out there, <laughs> young kids, whether you're college or you're beyond college, also have your own little apartment already. Get in the kitchen and get cooking. Light up those fires.
1: <laughs> I uh, you know? I think the thing I had to get over was being afraid of mistakes. I was mortified of making a mistake in the kitchen because I thought, you know, it'll just, it'll ruin the meal and and it's
3: going to start over. Zach, no, no, it will not. You know, mistakes are what happens in the kitchen. I make mistakes. And (laughs) there's- That's how you get
0: new recipes too.
3: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You continue. Next time you learn by them, but you can correct most of the mistakes. I mean, you know, let's say even to the point, let's say that you're, you're cooking something and it's beginning to burn at the bottom, close everything. Take everything off, leave the burnt part underneath, and continue. <laughs> and, and, you know, it'll be okay. It'll be a little bit of smell, a little bit of burn, but next time you'll be careful. So be attentive, correct, and don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid in the kitchen.
0: What are um, we're approaching Christmas now? Do you have any favorite Christmas recipes? Oh, my make?
3: goodness. You know, I have, uh, uh, I do have favorites. And some that I cook always, but I have always requests for my grandkids. I have five grandkids. So you know, uh, what a grandma does or a mother of that uh, sort of uh gifts to their to the requests of their family. that's 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 a joy. It's like a gift that, you know, you please the people that you love. So uh, I think uh, we're going to make certainly maybe a nice lasagna. I love uh, stock, a big pot of stock, capon stock with a little tortellini in there. That's going to be that. And then a roast of some sort. You know, I think either prime ribs or or something. I roast lots of vegetables because uh, I love my vegetables. The Italians, uh, you know, uh, vegetables are primary actually more than proteins uh, because, you know, I mean, economically, we didn't have that much protein, but vegetables and legumes always, there's so many wonderful products now out there, uh, seasonal uh, root vegetables now, roasted where there is uh, Jerusalem artichokes, sweet potatoes, uh, regular potatoes, shallots. You put all that in a pan, oil and garlic and parsley, and put it in the oven, and you got yourself. All right,
0: now I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Lydia, we have one more question
1: for you. We ask everybody who comes on the show, uh, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, uh, fictional or real, who would it be and why?
3: Wow. Well, this is very personal. I don't know how. Do you want to? Absolutely. Yeah. Personal is great. Yeah. Yeah. When I became the, the the immigrant and we were in the refugee camp in Trieste, the refugee camp was San Saba, there was a, a woman who had three boys and one of her boys was autistic. Now, my mother was a teacher, so she came to the camp and she asked, she said, she found out that there was a teacher whether my mother would come. And teach her son whether she would spend some time with her son, and uh, uh, my mother, of course, uh, said yes. But in return, this woman uh, paid, put me in 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 a in a a school in a uh, Canossian nuns, the Canossian nuns. And, uh, and my brother as well. She was so kind. She made this family, there was an immigrant family, really feel welcome. She made me feel welcome as a child. Because, you know, when, when you are 10 years old, it's, it's a sensitive age. And you're, you're in a camp. You don't have family around. You're among strangers. And there's somebody that embraces you. And that gives you an opportunity, and that uh, she opened the door to give me my—I think my—spiritual strength that lasted thereafter, with putting me in the school. So, uh, in my own little way, in my own little selfish way, I would like La Signora Leonora, Signora Leonora. La Leonori, to be to be that special person. Because she deserved it. I went to visit her after I came back from the United States. And do you know that she was 92? Her son at that time was, I don't know, 40-something. She still cared for him. Wow. Yeah. And then then he passed away, and she passed away soon thereafter. Mm. Sounds Mm. like a saint to me. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So the special is Lydia celebrates America overcoming the odds, and if people are listening to this on Friday, they can they still have a chance to watch it uh, on Sunday, and it can be streamed. But what's the website where they can find it?
3: So it's uh, on uh, on the nineteenth. Uh, they can find it on the local uh, PBS uh, Net and W L A W New York, but certainly on the PBS WGBH in Boston. That's the co-producer of the show with me. They streamed all of them. They, I have 12 of the specials, the ones with the veterans and all of that, but they certainly can stream it there. They could binge watch
1: all of the specials.
3: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Awesome. <laughs> Lydia, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having yeah, me. Thank you. It's December again. I can't believe. Best of-
0: All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week?
1: We mentioned this last week, but if you missed last week's episode, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But uh, second of all, we announced that we're going to Italy next fall, which is a huge deal, and we're so, so excited. We're finally getting out from behind the studio. I don't know about you, but I'm very much ready to travel again.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. We are traveling with Select International, and we have an amazing itinerary. We're going to start in Rome, hopefully get to go to the Pope's audience that he gives every Wednesday, and then we're heading up other places, Assisi, going to go to Venice, which I've never been to before. I'm super psyched about that. So you definitely don't want to miss this. Yeah, so
1: join Ashley and I and Father Eric Sundrupt, who helps uh, with the spiritual direction for the show next fall, September 17th to 28th. We're going to put the link in our show notes. Uh, Sign up soon because we only have limited spots available. We want to also thank our new Patreon supporters this week. We have a special shout out to Kelly Sankowski who uh, signed up at the $10 level. And again, as a reminder, if you, you know, sign up to support the show on Patreon, um, we're, we're super, super grateful at any dollar amount you can give. Uh, but at the $10 level, in addition to all the other benefits you get, you also get a subscription to America. So uh, check that out at patreon.patreon.com slash Media.
0: Yes. And that is a great benefit because we have a lot of really talented colleagues here in America, including Michael O'Loughlin, whose new book, Hidden Mercy, we talked about a couple episodes ago. And we did our drawing for the raffle for people who are on Patreon. And the winner is. <laughs>
1: There's my drum roll.
0: Perfect. Ronnie Flynn.
1: Thanks so much, Roddy. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. I, I said this when we talked to Mike, but this book made me cry. It's really good. I hope you enjoy it. And it's autographed. So let us know what you think.
0: And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our life this week. Uh, so I'm up. And I mentioned last week, uh, last Week when we were talking about distraction and prayer, how i was I was in mass. And instead of thinking about the mass, I was thinking about everything I had to do to uh, pull off the American media Christmas party last Friday. Well, we had the party. I think it was a great success. And so I was <laughs> thinking about how I could incorporate this thing that really gives me so much joy. Like every part of it, I love I love prepping for it. We make snowflakes and everyone comes around and I teach them how to make paper snowflakes and it creates this great communion at work. And then the party itself, you know, you you meet people's spouses and their kids come and it's just this wonderful, I don't know, seeing other parts of people and just coming together, not around any work, just food and drink and Christmas music, and it's a great thing. And I was like, how am I possibly going to incorporate this into this part of the show? So I was like, oh, perfect. Zach wrote this Advent Reflection last week about how people called Jesus a drunkard and a glutton. Uh, because he had so, you know, it seemed like he enjoyed a good feast. Yes. And so I was like, oh, okay, so if Jesus did it, then it's fine. If I <laughs> if I do it, there must be God somewhere in there. Uh, and so I was telling this to you and, and Father Sundrop, and he was just like, why do you – it sounds like you feel like you need to justify doing this for some reason. Like, why is that? And so then I had to answer him, which is always the hard part of spiritual direction. Right,
1: when they – yeah, <laughs> those cutting questions. And I, and I brought up, and I'm working with uh, – inside knowledge about you. But I feel like you also have to justify it because you feel like it's not real work. Right. Because um, So you're like, oh, this thing I've spent a lot of time on um, that's really important to me is also somehow, quote unquote, productive. Right. And, and meanwhile, I'm seeing it as I'm like, oh, and this is like a, a, a form of ministry to this community that is your your, your place of work. Um, and so, it you know, I don't need convinced, but <laughs> it seems like you did a little bit. Yeah.
0: And so... I- you know father sundrop was like what's what's the voice telling you ashley like you need to justify bringing joy to other people like that's not enough it needs to also like you know contribute to the bottom line and obviously that is not that is not the voice of god
1: operating or like to justify bringing it to prayer right like you're like oh this thing's important to me but i don't really know where god fits into this
0: yeah so what i i took away from this experience and maybe want to share with our listeners is it's it's helpful to take stock sometimes especially as we head into the christmas season this is going to be our our last our last episode before before we have christmas and new year's so just maybe i'd invite you to think about where you're maybe thinking you know too rigidly about what counts as as ministry what counts as cooperating with god in in your work and also where you're maybe too harsh on yourself for enjoying the the goods that God has created for us.
1: All right, well, that's a great great point because we are done until Christmas. So, we just wanted to say uh, as we're heading into this Christmas season in this new year, uh, first of all, happy Advent and 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 Merry Christmas! And uh, thank you, thank you all so much for listening to the show, for supporting it, for. Um, following Ashley and I down this this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what it means to be a, a, a young adult Catholic. Um, we couldn't do it without you. So we hope that you get a chance to be with some people that love you this holiday season. And we're going to look forward to seeing you in the new year.
0: All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next year.